Good morning, everyone. This is a Super Sunday, because every Sunday is a Super Sunday, because we get to worship the Lord and through the week. But I want to share with you an incident that's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 24. It's from David when he was king of Israel, about a thousand years before Christ. And David commits a sin of pride in this passage. He has chosen in the glory of his kingdom, to number his people. But his motives were wrong, and his advisor knew it. And he, he said, don't do this. That would be a sin against the Lord. And uh, his encouragement was that, you know, God's given you this kingdom, and he's the one who's enabled you to expand this kingdom, and now you're going to rely on the numbers of your people. But David wouldn't be dissuaded, and he moved forward anyway. And God brought a plague upon the nation because of that, in judgment. Well, David was heartbroken, and he cried out to the Lord, and God sent a prophet to him that told him he needed to go up to the hill there. Uh, there's a Jebusite living up there, and by the threshing floor, which is a rocky place where they would thresh grain, and make an altar there and offer sacrifice to the Lord so this plague would stop. Well, David makes his way up there. He greets Arunah, this Jebusite, and he offers to buy the threshing floor to make that sacrifice. And the Jebusite says, not only can you have the threshing floor, you, you can have my oxen here and their yokes as wood for the fire. You can have it all. Go right ahead. David's response is interesting and it's instructive. He says, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. David understood that worshiping the Lord and serving the Lord were really one and the same, and that both required sacrifice on the part of the worshiper, on the part of the servant. That uh, no one else could take your stead when it came to worshiping or serving. No, it had to be personal and it had to be sacrificial. Well, a thousand years later, the Apostle Paul came to that same conclusion, and it's reflected in the book of Romans. Remember last week, we looked at the book of Ephesians, which was a letter written to the church at Ephesus and to the church at large down through the ages, but how Paul in that letter had taken the first half, three chapters as we have it divided up, to talk about what God had done for us how he'd blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and how he'd lavished the riches of his grace upon us in Christ. He spends three chapters in that Ephesian letter talking about that. Then he comes to chapter 4 and says, I, I, Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And talks about how we should serve the Lord because of the blessings we've received. He does something very similar in the book of Romans. Because this was a letter written to the church in Rome. And for 11 chapters, he logically describes our desperate state as sinners separated from a holy God. Whether we're religious or irreligious, there's a huge separation. And we can't bridge that gulf. But God stepped in to time and space in the person of Christ. And he paid the price for our sin so that we could come back to him. And how, because of God's mercies and grace, he's 
offered us justification, forgiveness, pardon, as if we'd never sinned. And then it just grows and grows through those chapters, through the eighth chapter, one of the high points in that book. And the 11 chapters, he's talking about the mercies of God. And then comes to chapter 12, and he says this, Therefore, because of everything I've been saying, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The people who heard this letter read, and most of them, they were read in house churches in various places. They were mostly illiterate. They'd hear it read. I mean, they were familiar with sacrifices. But this concept of living sacrifices would have been new to them. I mean, if they'd been from a pagan culture, they knew about offering sacrifices. They did that to idols. And uh, that was their perverted religion. But the Jews understood sacrifice as well because that happened at the temple in Jerusalem where the priests would offer animal sacrifices on the altar and they'd go up in smoke. But living sacrifices? Paul introduces this concept that God no longer wants dead animals torched on altars. He wants people offering themselves sacrificially to serve and to worship him. And that's what he sets forth here. And that was, wow, that was stunning to these people. In this, the fifth message in the series, Improving Your Serve, I want us to consider that God's mercy compels us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And if we get that, we'll understand that that dispels the notion that serving God is attending a weekly worship service. That's not what he had in mind. That's good. That can be good if, if, if we give ourselves to the Lord, but he wants uh, our whole selves and each day, that all that we do honors him and brings glory to him. So he wants us to understand that that's going to take some sacrifice of our time, our treasure, our talents, because he wants us to be all in for him. In the verses that follow this, I think he sets forth some characteristics of a living sacrifice. Let's consider them. They're reflected in the outline in your bulletin. First one's this. Living sacrifices are being transformed so as not to be conformed. He says in verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. If our minds are renewed, if we're transformed instead of conformed, we'll prove out in our experience that God's will is great. It's good, it's acceptable, it's perfect. But we won't even know His will as long as we are being conformed to this world. The word for world there is Ion, which means age. He's saying don't fit into the spirit of the age. We live in a fallen world. We know that from Scripture, and we know that by looking around us and just looking at the news. There's a lot of evil present in the world. The Bible says there's a God of this age, a God of this world, small g, and that's Satan. He's a deceiver, he's a manipulator, and we've been all held under his sway before we came to Christ, we didn't even know it. And we're certainly impacted even afterwards and can be conformed to the spirit of this age. Now, the first century had 
of spirit. I mean, with the Greek influence flowing into the Roman Empire, which followed it, idolatry was rampant. There were so many gods that were being worshipped. False religion was prevalent. And the value system uh, didn't reflect anything about the values or standards of God. Life was not sacred. Infanticide was practiced routinely. Babies were left out to die if they weren't wanted. Um, suicide was very prevalent. Moral perversion and promiscuity was everywhere, even used as worship. That was the spirit of the age. And Paul is telling these people, don't fit into that. Don't conform to that. Well, here we have in our culture much the same as was prevalent there. The same spirit of the age because it's the same God of the world uh, as was then. He's been defeated, but he's not given up. And so we have in our culture all kinds of values that uh, promote all kinds of idolatry, the devaluation of life, uh, just beliefs and systems and sexual perversions and promiscuities that defy what God has set forth. I mean, our legislature began to meet mid-January, and the bills that are already coming forth often just reflect something that is so counter to what God says. And so we need to understand that. We need to discern that, whoa, there is a spirit of the age that's different than the spirit of God and the word of God. Another example of this, I think, or way that it's worded was set forth by John MacArthur some years ago in a book called The Truth War. He says this, The goal of human philosophy used to be truth without God. Today's philosophers are open to the notion of God without truth, or to be more accurate, personal spirituality, in which everyone is free to create his or her own God. Personal gods pose no threat to the sinful self-will because they suit each sinner's personal preferences anyway, and they make no demands on anyone else. About a month ago, I was up at the hospital and uh, waiting outside of a room, and I encountered a nurse, and we began to talk. And so somewhere in the conversation, I just asked her where she was at in her spiritual pilgrimage. And she said, well, I am spiritual. And in fact, I'm saving up money because I'm going to go to India and study under a guru over there. So we had a really neat and interesting conversation after that. And I pray that God really touched her life. But it's so in, it's so cool for everybody these days to say, I'm spiritual. In truth, everybody is spiritual. Because God built us with the capacity to know him. But for someone to suggest that there is one true and living God, that's not very popular. And yet that's what scripture says. But we're influenced by our culture and the spirit of the age. Probably more than we realize. Movies are a great source of influence. I mean, we need to understand that there's an agenda behind most every movie. Somebody has something in mind, and our children need to know that too, and realize that, uh, wow, what's the message I'm supposed... And how does that compare with what God says? Television, books, uh, wow. I mean, you can go on and on. Our classrooms are often indoctrination uh, of counter to what God has to say. And so we need to understand that celebrities espouse their agenda, the spirit of the age. What does God say? 
We need to learn and help our children learn to be discerning. And we need to understand that we're influenced by the people we hang around with if we're not intentional about it. We need to be intentional about hanging out with unbelievers because Jesus did, and he wants us to be salt and light. We need to have friendships with people that don't, never go to church or that aren't Christian, but we may, need to make sure that we're, we're there praying for them, influencing them, and not absorbing the values that they may have believed, have come to believe. I, I've seen it so many times, for instance... Uh, through the years, that uh, when a marriage is in trouble, sometimes a drifting spouse will gravitate to friends who are in that same circumstance or that have gone through divorce, and they hear those people say, yeah, you just need to dump that guy, or you need to get rid of uh, her because it's all about your happiness. And we'll seek counsel that just confirms what we wanted to do anyway, but what about God's counsel? And that's what we really need to seek if we're going to be uh, not conforming to the spirit of the age. The two words that he used here are in stark contrast. When he says, don't be conformed, that's the word schema, which we get the word scheme from. Well, the devil has a scheme and devices to take us away from God. But transformed is the word morphe, from which we get the word metamorphosis. You know how a caterpillar goes into a cocoon, is changed from the inside, transformed, and becomes a butterfly. Well, that's the picture here that Paul's presenting. He's saying that rather than being conformed to the age around us, we need to be transformed from within by the renewing of the mind. How does that take place? Our mind is renewed as we are ingesting God's word as we're taking it in to our minds pondering it in our hearts and then the Holy Spirit can help us to understand it and then to apply it in decisions and choices that we make and that's why it's so important for us to have a regular intake of God's word so that the Holy Spirit can direct us and instruct us uh, when we go through our days and make our decisions and I don't know about you but I need a regular uh, intake because I need a continual renewing of my mind so as not to be conformed, but rather transformed to be like Christ. So that's one characteristic. Here's another. Living sacrifices see themselves as part of something greater. Paul continues and says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as so to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. We're to have a right understanding, not an exaggerated opinion of ourselves, but sound judgment and not a lesser opinion of ourselves either because God's given us abilities. He's given us spiritual gifts, which he'll get into in just a moment. And he says, every one of us has been given a measure of faith that we can use to be the people that God's called us to be within the body of Christ. Then he says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, he's talking about the human body here. Have many members, hands and arms and fingers and all kinds of internal organs, and, and these are different, and they don't all have the same function, but they make up this 
one body. He said, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ. And individually, members of one another, we're connected. And we have to be, he says, in order for this body of Christ to function. But it's important for us to see, it's not about me, it's about him and it's about us. In our individualistic culture, we often miss that. But we need to see the big picture. And I think that was illustrated this past fall as it played out. I got an email last week, and this is what it said. Enough. I've seen a lot of hatred spewed in recent days about a man who is a constant winner and overachiever. And that's what people who support him like about him. Yes, he's been caught in some controversial situations, but he's still out there proving his haters wrong time after time. Some people are just jealous of someone who's successful and has money. Throw in a foreign model at his side and they hate him even more. You may not have wanted him in his role, but he's there now and there's nothing you can do about it. I know it's just going to get worse over the next several days, but like it or not, Tom Brady is in the Super Bowl. Okay, it got me too when I read that, inter that email. Sometimes I think we need to lighten up a little bit. Boy, I could just feel the tension rising in here, you know. But <laughs> last night, they had the NFL Awards, National Football League Awards show. It was a great show. And uh, Dak Prescott, the Dallas uh, Cowboy Quarterback Rookie of the Year Award. And he came up to receive his award and he thanked the Lord, and he thanked his mom, and then he thanked the Dallas Wall, the offensive line in front of him. That's a smart quarterback. Because he knows that if, if it wasn't for those guys, he'd be sacked. He knows that despite what the press says about Matt Ryan and Tom Brady, those guys know that there's 11 people on the field at the same time. And uh, every one of them is essential and vital to the purpose of that team. Well, that's what we are to understand from the Apostle Paul here is that, yes, we have a vital role to play. Every one of us does in connection with the larger body, and we have to remember that. If not, we can be sacked. In fact, I, I've mentioned that I can be sacked at any time by the PowerPoint people or the sound people when I'm trying to share a message, you know. And so we have to appreciate the people that surround us. So Paul's saying, when you serve, you have to evaluate yourself, your gifts that God's given to you. You need to dedicate those gifts to the whole body, and then you need to activate the gifts. And that's what he talks about in this next set of verses. The characteristic is that living sacrifices serve by faith to maximize their gifts. Here's how he words it. Verse 6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Take note of that. Gifts that are given to us according to the grace he's given us. If prophecy lists some gifts, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are some examples. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, that's like speaking forth the word of God. Sometimes it would have been predictive. Sometimes just the revelation that had already been given. If, if service in his serving, this would be probably a focus on benevolent serving, caring for the poor, the sick. 
He who teaches in his teaching or he who exhorts in his exhortation. Teaching, appeal to the mind. Exhortation to the emotions. So the exhorter is one who comes alongside of us and says, you know what's right here. This is what you need to do. This is what we need to do. And then he says, uh, for he who gives with liberality. If you've got the gift of giving, go ahead and use it. And God blesses churches and ministries with those with the gift of giving. We're all called to give. When we pass the plate or if we give online or whatever, we're all called to give. But some people are just gifted with that uh, particular spiritual gift. And they give way beyond, which enables the cause of Christ to move forward amazingly. And then he says, he who leads with diligence. Don't hold back. Go ahead and put yourself fully into it. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Recently, we've had some people step forward and say, we want to form a ministry to call on shut-ins or those who are in the hospital and, and uh, encourage them and lift them up. So gifts matter. It says with cheerfulness. You wouldn't want to send somebody into a hospital room and, uh, that, that can't cheer them up. You know, if you think of Winnie the Pooh and Eeyore, right? Uh, Gosh, you're sick. I'm not sure you're going to make it here, you know. That would not be helpful. So gifts matter when it comes to how they're employed. But gifts, that word here is charismata. Does that sound familiar? That's the Greek word, charismata, from which we get the word charismatic. It's a transliteration. And so we've heard about charismatic churches, charismatic Christians. If someone were to ask you, are you a charismatic, what would you say? If they'd say, uh, is Kaimuki Christian a charismatic church, what would you say? A lot of times we don't understand that every Christian who's received the Holy Spirit is a charismatic. Because every Christian has received a grace gift from God, one or more spiritual gifts. And every church that follows the Lord uh, is really a charismatic church may not know it, but they've got people in there that have gifts. Every true believer does have grace gifts from God. The problem is, many years ago, and I'm sure this is just in my experience, it's down through the ages, we made a dichotomy between the two. And there were some groups that began to be called charismatics that emphasized maybe some of the more spectacular gifts. Healing, miracles, speaking in tongues. Those became known as the charismatic Christians and charismatic churches like the others were not. And these people felt defensive, like, what, are we second rate or whatever? They started writing books at each other and the body of Christ was divided. But the truth is, we're all charismatics when we understand it. And there's no gift that's more important than others or member of the body that's less or more important than others. We need each other and together we form the body of Christ. We need to discover our gifts and then employ those gifts with the rest of the body. Peter the apostle put it this way, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. You say, well, I'm not sure what my gifts are. Well, in the next few weeks, we're going to give you some opportunities to learn what those gifts are. Starting next weekend, we're going to make available online and with hard copies a spiritual gifts inventory. 
fill out a questionnaire of about 105 questions you respond to, um, and uh, it's multiple choice, and uh, it's not an essay test, uh, and, and it'll help you get an understanding of, oh, okay, these are indications of my gifts. Some of you know them already, what yours are, and we do that in the base path, but if you don't know, that'll help, and then there'll be another way, which I'll mention in a moment, where you get your gift confirmed as to what it is. Joshua took over from Moses after Moses had led them out of Egyptian slavery, the nation of Israel. They wandered around the wilderness for 40 years because they didn't believe they could go into the promised land and take it. But then Joshua is taking over and God says to him, Joshua, I've given you the whole land. It's yours. And uh, can you imagine the scenario? If Joshua is standing there and pretty soon God says, well, Joshua, what are you waiting for? I mean, uh, what's that silly grin on your face? Joshua says, hey, I've just been reflecting on and contemplating this gift that you've given to me of this land and just kind of waiting for it. God says, no, Joshua, you don't get it. He says, I've given it to you, but you've got to claim it. That's going to take some faith and you've got to start walking and there will be a battle because there are those that don't want you to have this gift. And I think that's a beautiful analogy of the gift that God's given to each of us. We each have gifts, but it isn't going to magically appear. We need to claim that gift by faith and start walking in that, and then it'll become apparent. And uh, there'll be a battle because the enemy doesn't want us to employ these gifts because when that happens, God is glorified in the body of Christ is built. Every year we have three sessions of, of the base path, which follows our up-to-bat classes. And during that eight weeks, we, we help people discover their spiritual gifts. We also, among other things, but we also seek to identify leaders within those groups because, because of their faith stories, when they share their stories with each other, uh, we help them to do that. These people really grow close. And at the end of it, they usually want to keep going. So we attempt to identify leaders within that group of people that can take that group on. And the one we just finished this past fall, Jason and Winnie Tomita, we could see in their lives just a real propensity uh, for leading. So we challenged them to go ahead and lead. And uh, in fact, I want you to hear from them via video uh, how that's going. Hi, my name is Jason Tomita. I am Winnie Tomita. My, my family is a traditionally Buddhist. My parents were not Christians, but I was blessed to go to attend a Christian school. I think I first heard Jesus when I was going to Ilani. Um, we had chapel service uh, two times a week. For me, I uh, went to a Christian school when I was uh, a little girl, and I was fortunate enough to learn about Jesus in Sunday school. And that's where I started um, going to church and learning about God and His Word. My life before Christ was largely, um, I guess, uh, not very fulfilling. I think it was along the lines of sort of um, self-centered. For, for me, in terms of a relationship with Jesus, I think I was sort of compelled to um, uh, strengthened my relationship with my wife. She was a Christian and sort of uh, um, she le led me to church. In the beginning it was a little difficult because I was 
more of the church goer and so convincing Jason to come with me you know I don't want to force him I want him to come on his own so that was kind of a big deal when he had you know the he, he was willing to come with me to church and I think that was the first step in, in your relationship I think with God and Jesus. For myself I don't think there was sort of a, a moment where I didn't want to um, support my wife I think uh, you know um, I think at that level of my life it was sort of um, changing for her, you know, voice, um, expecting your partner to change. And, um, and I think for both of us, it was largely, um, we came from families that weren't Christians. So I think that was sort of a, a way to kind of um, support each other. So uh, for the Up to Bad classes, we actually received a letter from Pastor Ron inviting us to come to Up to Bad classes. And so we've been coming to church for about five years now. And uh, we we said okay, you know, we decided let's let's try it out, and and that's how we started at the up to that class. It was along along the lines of uh, meeting with other new believers and uh, studying God's word and you know uh, KCC's principles with regards to uh, uh, participating and worshiping God. The faith stories, I think, were were one thing that. Um, I don't think there was a dry eye every time anybody shared a faith story. Well, I was bawling, so. <laughs> but I don't think anyone, um, anyone knew it was going to be so impactful. That's kind of one of the reasons why um, the eight-week base path, um, when it ended, a lot of our group members were asking, "Oh, are we going to continue?" You know, and then they they wanted to learn more and. And Pastor Ron sort of volunteered us <laughs> and told us, hey, why don't you guys, you know, leave, right? And that's kind of where um, we thought about it and we said, yeah, it seems natural for us to lead it. Not because we think we're, we're great at it, because this is the first time we're doing it. I think we're a good uh, fit together. Um, Wendy's definitely a bit more uh, social of the two and, you know, <laughs> she does a very, very good job in terms of uh, socializing with people. She's always uh, uh, warm and welcoming to people. I think that's sort of what attracted me to her. <laughs> you're making me blush. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then you're the organizer, of course. You're the analytical, silent, waters run deep kind of guy. So for me, being the less social person, I, I'd uh, typically send out uh, emails to my um, um, Bible study group. Looking through uh, scripture for um, appropriate um, passages. Uh, de definitely, it's outside of my comfort zone. I think it was, you know, if you were to ask us, you know, if we, we were um, going to do this five years ago, I'm pretty sure the answer would have been no. no. <laughs> uh, Even for myself, I don't think I would be courageous enough to do it on my own. I think I would need Jason to be by my side and I can assist or, you know, provide input. But as far as you doing it on your own and me doing it on my own, I don't think that was going to happen. <laughs> uh, I was uh, recently baptized yeah, this year as well. Right. So yeah. I satisfied the conditions of membership. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, I think for what, you know, uh, God has done for me, for us, I'd, I'd like to sort of have an opportunity to share that with others and see sort of, you know, how their lives can be encouraged or uh, strengthened going forward. All right. Okay.
And uh, there they are, Jason and Winnie. (laughs) There were so many gifts that, you know, just came to the surface during those eight weeks. And we saw that in Jason and Winnie. And then David and Calvin have provided some ongoing training for them, which is important. Once we step into an area, it doesn't mean our gift is developed. We grow in the use uh, of those gifts as we practice it. But you know what happens is if that's the area of our giftedness, it'll be confirmed by the fruit that we see. Uh, on Thursday afternoon, I was on the lower lanai, and there's Kanoho Koko there to pick up his little girl from school, and he says, hey, Ronnie, I just want you to know that Jason and Wendy are doing a terrific job in leading our small group. I said, okay, that's great. They've led them on into an Ohana group. And then Friday night, coming to church, I was walking across the parking lot, and Rose Hyena says, hey, Pastor Ron, Jason and Winnie are doing a fantastic job leading our group. And then Kurt and Pua this morning told me the same thing, and it's like, wow, that's confirmation. So we're going to keep you guys in that role, if that's okay, you know. <laughs> but that's, that's really stepping out in faith and then discovering, okay, God's confirming this. And aren't you fulfilled when that happens? Because you see God using you in that circumstance. When they sent the space shuttle Columbia up some years ago, they did a lot of experiments. And one of the tests the scientists conducted revealed that under the Sahara Desert, there are 26 lakes. You think about that, and you think about the people that have struggled across that desert. Many have died of thirst. If they'd only been able to tap into the water below them, they would have lived and helped others to do the same. I think that that's true of our lives a lot of times. Some of you uh, may have gifts you don't even know about because you haven't really stepped into some area of serving. But when you do, it's like, wow, you tap into the gift that God's already given you, and uh, you are blessed. Your spiritual thirst is quenched, and certainly that is true of those around you. We don't want to miss out. And we find that by stepping forward in faith as a living sacrifice. Some of you need to do that initially. Some of you may need to step back into service. Because as someone has said, the problem with a living sacrifice, they can get up off the altar and walk away. Well, for some of you, it may be time to get back up on the altar. For all of us to realize that's the pathway of joy in following the Lord, is to offer ourselves, because of His mercies, as living sacrifices. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we're so grateful for Your sacrifice, Your sacrificial love for us, and the mercies You've extended to us, and the opportunity that we have now to live, not for ourselves, but for You, who gave Yourself for us. Thank You, we pray in Your name. Amen.